Welcome to the Trailbreaker Podcast. I'm Aaron Feinberg. In this podcast, I explore what it takes to be a trailbreaker through intimate conversations with people carving new paths across the landscapes of business, art, and sport, we dig in on how to excel across seemingly disparate endeavors. What drives people who manage to succeed multidimensionally? Is it how they think? Is it meticulous planning and follow through? Or is it some measure of delusional optimism? My guest today is Rich Radford, guide and program director for Biome Africa and principal of the Garden Root Company. He's also a naturalist, explorer, conservationist, wildlife photographer, and surfer. We talked about how the South African bush has influenced his landscape design company and new project, Biome Africa. How to use exploration as a means to environmental education and conservation, and why immersive walking adventures are so effective at changing people's lives. Good morning, Rich, and thank you so much for joining me on the show today and for welcoming me to your beautiful San Francisco home. Thank you, Aaron, and thank you for including me in your Trailbreaker podcast series. I'm really excited to, to discuss uh, some pretty amazing topics and uh, get into conservation discussions. Awesome. So let's kick it off with your existing business, the one you've had for over 20 years, Garden Root. And what is Garden Root and how'd you get started? Well, uh, essentially, we design and build gardens. Um, and uh, for the most part, we're, we're, we're artisans um, and we, we take our design build um, journeys for all our clients very seriously. You know, we, it's, it's a, they're all creations from the heart. Uh, my business partner, myself, um, have been doing this together for 23 years. We're licensed landscape architects, contractors, and then we also take care of close to 90 gardens in the Bay Area. Um, so, you know, we develop um, gardens that are small postage stamp landscapes in San Francisco to large estates um, and some some resorts. Uh, we've designed a few de- you know, resorts around the Bay Area too. Um, and we design landscapes also out of, out of the Bay Area, out of state. Um, we get invited to some pretty fun projects. Um, and we're really just open to anything that's creative and fun. And uh, we love working with people who allow us to be creative and uh, to embrace the, the ideas that we have around sustainability and getting people out into the garden. So how did you wind up growing up in South Africa to getting here to California. What was that path like? Um, that was an interesting path. Um, having grown up in South Africa, which I feel very honored and uh, it's a gift to having grown up in a, in a place that was surrounded by wild wildlife, amazing plants. Uh, the Garden Route, actually, my company is named after a stretch of coastline in South Africa called the Garden Route. Um, uh, I was on a surf trip going up to Jeffreys Bay um, in the late eight, late nineties, and was wondering what to call the company that I was still yet to open. And as I was thinking about this, I drove past a sign saying "Welcome to the Garden Route," and I was like, "Wow, I think I might steal that name." <laughs> so, um, but back up a little bit. So, growing up in South Africa, surrounded by wild places, I, I grew up on a lot of land and surrounded by what we call open bushveld. Um, uh, in the high felt of South Africa, and then when I was a you know, young teenager, moved down to 
down to Cape Town. Uh, and then we were living amongst what we call Fainboss, which is this amazing uh, plant biome um, in the Western Cape. It's one of the most biodiverse places on earth. Um, and, you know, none of this stuff was, I wasn't really cognizant of this stuff growing up in South Africa, but I was cognizant about it when I left it and realized like, wow, you know, it, that place was a significantly big influence on my life. Moved to London after finished high school in the early 90s. Um, meandered around, you know, did my A-levels. I had no idea what I wanted to do. Before I left South Africa, I was I was going to be a game ranger. That, that was the only thing that I had uh, going for me at that point. But my parents decided, you know, they're going to move to London. And they, they gave me an option staying in South Africa or moving to London. And, and being a young South African who was interested in little adventure, I decided that London was a good option. Um, it did take me away from my roots, um, but it, it all, it, it just kind of, it stayed there. It was marinating deep down. Um, worked on a bar, worked on an ostrich farm of all things, um, doing corralling ostriches and creating fencing enclosures. It was a very strange job in England. Um, but then worked in a bar and I ac- accidentally befriended this this mason this welsh mason who took me under his wing and said oh you've got to learn a skill you know you got to you know you got to learn a trade and i thought well why not you know um so he introduced me to a design build company in england um i was basically just a a laborer um helping out building gardens and uh, we got involved with some pretty interesting projects uh for uh, the Royal Swede, the Royal Family. We ended up uh, getting the Tudor Rose Award from the Queen. Um, so it exposed me to some pretty high-level design build uh, ethics and um, created the base foundation for where I am today. Um, from then, I, I decided to take on uh, a degree in landscape design and build. And part of that degree was coming out here um, as an intern and I actually had an option of either going to uh, Dubai, and Dubai was just about to start their big development, or come to California. Now, as a surfer, the, the, uh, the choice was pretty simple. Uh, so I decided to move here to the Bay Area, um, finish my internship, move back to England, finish my degree, and then was brought back out here as a full-time employee of a design-build firm. And then from there, I decided a few years later to strike out on my own uh, with my business partner um, and uh, 23 years later here we are and so Garden Root is growing quite a bit over those years you've got a bunch of teammates and so how many folks currently on the team we have close to 30 team members Um, we have you know a lot of craftsmen and artisans Um, we have a whole backup administrative staff we have project managers designers and then of course my business partner myself uh, so we have a, a you know quite a layered um, company um, profile now uh, we're still a small business uh, but you know sometimes I have to step back and go wow we're actually we've got a significant infrastructure here that we have to take care of and um, yeah it's a responsibility but it's also a um, there's a lot of pride and a lot of love and heart that goes into what we do. And, you know, it's been, 
it's been something that you've done for over 20 years. It's not going anywhere. It's just still your lifeblood. Mm-hmm. But you've got a really cool additional project you're breaking into. That's right. And what's that called? That's called Biome Africa. Um, so a lot of people ask me, well, what's a biome? You know, and, and, and so biome um, is a, um, it's, it's a, a, a geographic area that encompasses everything from geology, plants, insects, mammals, birds. It's, it's the whole environment. Biome Africa, having come from South Africa, um, I'm concentrating on sub, well, Southern African biomes, uh, specifically South Africa, Botswana, Zambia, Zimbabwe, Mozambique. Those are the areas that I'm, I'm kind of profiling as part of this project. And um, in essence, it's a exploration, education, and conservation company. Um, we're probably going to apply for a nonprofit status at some point. Um, it's just a little seed right now, but uh, it's starting to get some legs. And um, I've been talking about it for long enough. Um, so, you know, I've decided to, to make a, a leap into the world of African conservation. And we'll get into each component mm-hmm. in more specificity, but give us a little bit of detail on, on each of those three components. And then I want to hear how, where the inspiration for all this came from. Yeah. Um, so exploration, education, conservation. Um, pre-pandemic, um, I had sat down just to write some notes. And, and I, you know, I go back to the South African bush um, as, as much as I can. And uh, my wife gave me an opportunity to go on my own, uh, engage with my family back in South Africa. And I did a, a solo trip into the Kruger National Park on my own um, and did a, a bit of a silent retreat, actually. I didn't speak to anyone for over a week um, and just started thinking about how, how could I be involved in, in conservation in Southern Africa um, and not just be a tourist. And so, but I still wanted people to understand that it's, it's an adventure, you know, it's, there's amazing things to see and experience. So the exploration part had to be a component of this. I also realized that without education, um, and that education meaning the people who actually go to these places, there should be a, a component of education, like why it is that these places exist. Um, and educating people about the plants and animals and insects and the biodiversity that's there so the education part is also a big component and i thought well that you know that would be important for people to come away from experiences knowing more than they did before going into it um and um i was influenced by a company called eco training which i've run a bunch of courses with i've, I've done tracking courses uh, 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 guide courses uh, anti-poaching courses. It's an amazing company run by amazing people who really have their heart and souls in conservation. Um, and so that education part of Biome Africa is, is a significant part of what I want to try to achieve. And then the last but not least part of that is the conservation part of it. So having explored these places and educated yourself on why these places should be, should be preserved now we're talking about conservation. How, how, what can we do to help conserve these places for future generations? So 
part of that conservation strategy is to align myself uh, with partnerships and and fund really important programs that help with conservation as a whole, community out, outreach programs, um, anti-poaching, um, uh, endangered wildlife conservation. So those are the three the three arrows and um, yeah I I will all you know full disclosure I this is new to me um, I have my, my passion is rooted in wildlife it's an extremely important part of African culture as a whole um, the uh, the biodiversity of Africa is is so significant that all humans should really have have a stake in what happens in Africa and so if I come on an adventure with you all, so if I sign mm-hmm. up for something for Biome Africa, what does that look like? What's, what, what is my experience um, going to look like? How long is it going to be? What's the uh, impact? Who's going to be, who am I going to be working with? Who am I going to be mm-hmm. traveling around with? Mm-hmm. So right now I'm starting small. I have, I have two groups planned for next August, two groups of six. Uh, so we're looking to fill 12 spots. Um, we're specifically focusing on next year, specifically in the Pafuri region of uh, the Kruger National Park, which is the most northeastern part of the Kruger National Park. Park. It's the most remote part of South Africa. Uh, it borders uh, Zimbabwe and Mozambique. Um, it actually, if you look on some old maps, it uh, used to be Crook's Corner. Uh, a lot of poaching and trade happened, you know, hundreds of years ago through that area. Um, it's steeped in in um, human history. Uh, there's uh, Iron Age um, communities that you can see up there. Uh, there are some amazing ruins, um, and so that's the area that I focus on. So. Ten, people fly into Hootspreet uh, near the Creek National Park, and then we have them hang out in a small lodge near Hootspreet, which is right on the border of the Creek National Park. And then we take people up on an overland, um, which takes about seven to eight hours up to this Pafuri region. Um, now, Pafuri, and the reason why I focus on Pafuri is um, a good friend of mine who's also one of my inspirations, Steve Falkenbridge. Uh, he's on, uh, you'll see him on Wild Earth. Um, uh, he's a, an amazing naturalist. Um, and uh, he can communicate the natural world better than anyone I know. Um, so he is my lead guide. And then we have a, a tracker with us. So I met Steve through while I was watching Wild Earth or what was called Safari Live years ago during the pandemic. And uh, I would go to bed listening to him and I'd wake up in the morning and listen to him on these, on these live safaris. And I thought, hey, well, why don't I reach out to Steve? You know, he seems like such a nice guy. You know, he's a very, um, he just seems like a very like open human and he is a uh, very compassionate human and very passionate about his, his, um, his skill, which is interpreting the natural world. I reached out to him. He returned my email which was amazing and we had a couple of zoom calls and i said listen i've got this idea about taking groups of people into into south africa and i'd love for you to you know be one of our guides and he was very open to it and so i took a group last year 
um, as part of my 50th, 50th birthday. And uh, Steve and another chap um, guided us in the Pufuri. And Steve introduced me to the Pufuri, which is a, a very beautiful um, symbiotic environment whereby the Makaleki people of Pufuri um, had that land returned to them in 1998. And a company um, called Return Africa teamed up with the Makaleki people as an economic partnership to run this part of the Kruger National Park as a, as a separate concession. And so the, the tribe of the Makaleki people have direct benefits from any ecotourism that happens in that area. Um, so I thought for me, um, starting off Biome Africa, I thought this was a perfect synergy for me to start and take people up to this area to show them how the economy, capitalism, ecotourism, nature conservation, safaris can all be together and everyone can, can um, get something from it. Um, instead of everyone just taking experience, there's, there's a give and take. Sure, people want people to come up there because um, it's, their, it's their livelihood. That's how they put food on the table for their families. But in return, people are getting something. They're getting this amazing, explorative, educational experience. So, And what we do, instead of just putting people on the back of Land Rovers and driving you around, mm-hmm. we're taking people on foot. So we stay in an unfenced camp. Um, it's a six-day um, adventure. We get up early in the morning, crack of dawn, before the sparrows. Um, and we go out walking for a few hours. We come back, we have breakfast, we chill out, and then in the afternoons we go out again and we go walking. Um, so essentially, we, when you walk, um, you get to see everything up and close. We interpret tracks. Um, we walk with elephants sometimes. Um, you're part of the environment when you're walking. So interpreting the, the land, tracking, interpreting wildlife, interpreting... Uh, you know, when we have close contact with elephants, for instance, it's very important to have good people who can interpret it, the, 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 um, just the general emotions of those animals. Because um, all, you know, all wildlife has, a, has a, an invisible boundary. Mm-hmm. And so it's very, I, I find it just very cool to walk with someone like Steve Falkenbridge who can interpret a, interpret a wildlife and um and also just give everyone an understanding of of our place in nature you know when we're walking it's it's primordial land we're kind of walking in the footsteps of our ancestors essentially and a lot of people feel that when they're there they really feel like they're they're going back in time and people have this visceral um uh just this visceral kind of feeling of like I've done this before in a past life um, so it's a it's a very it grabs people by their hearts and um, it also is just extremely invigorating to walk in the steps of elephants I mean I can only imagine just the the literal immersion you know the the exposure right just mm-hmm. the you know even the 
real or perceived protection of a vehicle, right? When, when that's taken out of the equation. Yeah. Uh, and, and I imagine, yeah, it must run people through a, a full range of experiences, uh, hopefully ending in a, in a, that, that place of, you know, wow and, yeah. and, and, and rootedness. But I imagine that it, for some folks, it might be a bit of an unpacking, uh, to sort of get comfortable in that space. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of unpacking. So initially, when we're driving through the Kruger National Park to get to our camp, we're in an open vehicle. The wildlife sees this vehicle as this big inanimate object that's never done anything to them. So lions will walk up to you. Wildlife walks around the vehicle. They don't see us as humans inside these vehicles as individuals. They don't see us as our predatorial background. You know, I mean... Humans are predators, essentially. We're forward-eyed facing, you know, predators. When you step out of that vehicle, wildlife vanishes. Um, you know, humans have been tracking and hunting wildlife for, you know, time immemorial. As soon as we step out that vehicle, everything scatters to the wind. So now, in order for us to actually experience wildlife, we actually now need to understand the environment that we're in, which way the wind's blowing. Um, we're tracking. So, okay, so we see these tracks of rhino, for instance. How, how do we get close enough to the rhino to experience the rhino without it, the rhino experiencing us? Um, the same with elephants, any, any wildlife that we're tracking. Um, one of my first experiences tracking was in Botswana in a place called Mushatu where we were tracking lion. And um, I got put into the lead tracking position. This was one of my assessments, and we tracked this male line. And we tracked really close to this line, and my, uh, uh, the teacher at the time, this guy Norman, great tracker, he said, stop, stop. Put his hand up, stop. He's like, you need to look up when you're tracking. You need to, you need to look everywhere whilst you're tracking. Now, if you look up now and look under that that bush over there, that acacia bush, what do you see? And I looked up and probably no more than about 400 feet ahead of me was a big male lion sitting under a tree fast asleep. You didn't even know we were there. You know, we were, we were up, you know, downwind from him. He couldn't smell us. He hadn't heard us. And I almost tracked us right into him. Um, so that's what happens when you're on foot is now you're really, wildlife knows you were there. All these animals can see, smell, hear in different layers. So, and all the wildlife is, they're all communicating with each other, which is interesting. It's like bird calls, certain birds have certain calls for predators. And all the other wildlife know, know about those calls. So now it's, okay, now I need to learn, I need to understand that that, you know, that lurey bird is now saying there's a predator. Now it's it's referring to us because we're on foot, so the other wildlife is hearing that they're taking off, they're moving away from us. Um, so the interpreting of the environment is is what happens to people, and everyone goes silent. We're walking a single file. Everyone's quiet. Now you're starting to listen, because mm. you know humans we live busy lives. We're 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 living in cities and towns. We don't get to hear wildlife communicating. And that listening part, slowing everyone's heart rate down, listening to the wildlife. Um, people start, you know, after a day or two, you start 
you know, start immersing yourself in this. It takes a while to get used to it all. And it's very, uh, people feel very exposed in the beginning, even though you're very safe. I think people get very nervous. I remember my first on-foot safari. I kept looking behind me and I remember the, the lead guide looking at me and he's like, trouble always comes from the front. Don't look behind you. Nothing's coming from behind you. Trouble always comes from the front. So keep looking forward and keep scanning. We need to look to see where we, what we're walking up to. Um, so small signs. Um, you know, as I said, there's birds that will give off signs. Um, and... Um, you know, there's a couple of birds that will hang out with large herbivores, large ungulates, um, rhino specifically. Um, we've got the uh, oxpacker, which is a a, um, a specific bird that that takes ticks, and it's a it actually will drink the blood of open wounds on it on rhino and 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 uh buffalo now if you see a, a flock of oxpeckers fly into the air just ahead of you well there's a very good chance there's a very large animal in front of you that probably doesn't want to get interrupted and doesn't want to be surprised by your group on foot so these are the things that we learn once we're walking and how long are the experiences usually uh so we do four days on foot uh, we have a night on each side in the main camp, which is our little soft landing into the environment. They're very beautiful, luxurious um, rooms in, in the uh, Pufuri camp. And um, so people get to sleep in a nice comfy bed and have beautiful food. And it's an amazing riverside camp. And then the next day we get transferred to our bush camp, which is an open, unfenced bush camp. Uh, we're glamping um, nice canvas tents we have a, a bucket shower food drinks I mean it's very comfortable mm-hmm. and um, so we have four four days four nights there and then we back to the main camp for a little soft exit and then we send people on their way um, I also if people want to experience other areas in and around that area i can set them up with that if they want to go down to cape town to experience the cape floral kingdom and um, the wine lands and all these other things i can set them up with that too um, i'm not calling myself a, a a tour guide by any means um, i'm more a conduit for people experience experiencing these on foot um, safaris um, so I'm there as also as a guide, and um, I help orchestrate and organize the whole experience for people. So you know, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of noise out there. If you were to type in on Google Safari, you know, there's so much that comes up, and I, a lot of people get overwhelmed with you know what experience should I choose. My my trips are very specific. I'm taking people on foot. It's perhaps not for everyone. Um, you have to be over 18 to walk um, but if you want a, a very truly authentic experience in the bush walking is is as far as I'm concerned the only way to go and when you end these experiences with people you know it seems like there'd be some integration right there seemed to be opportunity to at least get them thinking about what next steps could be for them mm-hmm. right um, what are some things you want to hopefully impart with these with these folks, um, and, you know, as a sort of a wrap up um, kind of capstone on the whole thing? Yeah. 
That's a good question, Aaron. Um, you know, as part of these these journeys, um, we do we do a lot of work with people. You know, people really start opening up in these environments where they can sit and listen. We walk with no one else is walking. We're away from all other people. We don't see any other people. We don't experience other humans. We're walking through big baobab forests, fever tree forests. We walk in the river. We, we walk upstream in, in, in the river. So people really get, they really start feeling the environment and it starts embedding itself into people. Um, you know, I, the last group I took up there, everyone came away from that as changed humans. Um, they, you know, and, it, and it's, it's hard to explain what the change is because everyone interprets their experience differently. But I see the change when people immerse themselves in these environments. So at the end of this experience, we sit around and we, we chat about what are you taking from this experience? And perhaps, you know, a lot of people are like, I'm coming back. Like, like four or five days is not enough. I have to come back. Um, and that's actually part of really the, the main impetus for Biome Africa for me is if I can... If I can instill some change in people, even if it's two people, literally if, if Biome Africa affects change in two people who in turn take up the plight of conservation in Africa, who in turn also instill change in other people and this chain reaction occurs, then I've, I feel like I've done something, you know, personally. Um, I don't have great, you know, economic aspirations that Biome Africa is going to be this amazing money-making endeavor. It's it's essentially a non-profit. All I want to do is take people to these environments, show them these places, show them where the last remaining megafauna on earth live and say, you know, you've seen it now, you see what's here, you see what's what what needs to be protected. And now it's up to you to do what you want with that information mm-hmm. um so yeah so i mean it, it that's the that's the, the story behind this is just trying to affect some change yeah in in terms of i know it's important to you to to be as integrated as possible with the communities in which you're working and and the and the people from those communities and in ways in which you can contribute to the um you know, the betterment of those communities and the growth of those communities. So what are some ways in which you, you all do that? So the ways that I'd like to do that um, is teaming up with some organizations that I really respect already. Um, and there's a lot of good people doing good work there already. There's a lot of organizations that are all set up for community outreach pro- projects uh, conservation groups that are dealing with anti-poaching, rhino conservation, and and rhino conservation for me is right now um, probably one of the most important aspects that I want to get involved with. Um, you know, in in the last fifty years, we have seen a sixty percent reduction of populations in rhino, elephant, lion. Uh, the list goes on, and that's just that's one generation um, and so rhino um, you know we still got healthy populations of rhino in South Africa but I think what I looked at the statistics I think last year we lost over 300 rhino due to poaching for rhino horn 
And rhino horn, uh, as science will tell us, is essentially keratin. It's what grows on our nails. That's it. it, it there are no medicinal benefits to rhino horn. But yeah, rhino horn, a whole massive two-ton animal is being killed and slaughtered in the bush for its horn. Um, the people doing the, the poaching um, aren't necessarily doing it because they want to poach. They're doing it because they have to poach. There's money out there that's dangling out there for these folk. And the, the, the attractive nature of this easy money is just too hard to resist. And so this is where the community outreach projects come into play. Um, there's amazing programs, anti-poaching programs out there that we want to support. Um, there's groups such as Black Mambas, which is a, feel, a female-led anti-poaching group that I'd love to support. Um, you know, other, other organizations such as uh, Tracker Academy that's uh, founded by Alex van der Heven and um, uh, Renius Moshlongo. Um, they started the Tracker Academy, which takes um, a lot of disenfranchised um, South Africans um, from small villages, small areas surrounding these conservation areas and beyond, and teaching them how to track. Mm. And then getting them into jobs with all these different game lodges, getting them into anti-poaching tracking. Um, that, I think, is a really important project because not only does it benefit the people the individuals, giving them a, a lifeblood, giving them a, a career. It helps with ecotourism and it also ha helps with anti-poaching. So there's an organization I'd love to support. Um, yeah, there's a whole slew of other um, organizations out there that um, help with um, conservation throughout Southern Africa, um, different um, uh conservation groups that help with community outreach programs that bring kids into these wild places so they can experience what it means to be in a, a wild place and go on a safari because the reality is a lot of these communities outlying these areas just see you know rich you know european folk going into these places and and having a nice you know luxury safari which is all good and well uh for those lodges and and it that money coming into these conservation areas is really important because it supports a lot of people. But I think bringing those communities into these conservation areas so their kids can also experience the same thing is really important. So I would love it if I could raise enough money where I'm going to a village outside of you know, Pufuri and saying, okay, I'm bringing this whole group of kids into the Pufuri and we're going to do an on-foot safari with these kids and show them what it's like to be back in the wild, you know? Yeah, and I think that that's a that's a good distinction just because you know this is a project you're just starting, right? And so, right. you know, hearing you describe it as as you would love to support and I just want to make sure folks know that 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 these are this is where it's headed, right? You you've yeah. only had one group or maybe two, right? I've had one group so yeah. far. Yeah. And so the intention being that, you know, um, those are your sort of north stars in terms of how you can 
contribute to um, continue to contribute as this thing grows is to really pull those different groups in and to support the ones that are already doing good work. So I just want to call that out to, uh, as is again, this is in its infancy. It's in its infancy. And, um, I've, I've made a few strides to connect with some very good influential people. Um, so my job now really is to, to put the word out, you know, starting in the Bay Area and beyond and trying to get people to sign up for these trips. Um, and as each person joins a trip, I'm donating a, a good portion of their their payments towards um, conservation groups that I really would love to, to um, support. Um, as part of these trips, actually, what I also want to do is to take these folks and, and go show them these conservation groups at work. So there's a few rhino um, sanctuaries near Hutsprate. Um So unfortunately, one of the um, one of the results of poaching is that you know female um, rhino will get poached, and a lot of times they'll have calves with them. They'll have young rhino. So the rangers will actually call on these conservation groups to come and and get these young rhino and look after them um, in these in these little um, uh, you know. Uh, small habitats where they can try and look after these young rhino and hopefully one day put them back into the wild. Um, so um, those folks need as much money as they can get to, you know, running a rhino sanctuary is very expensive. Um, and so that's that's one of my primary goals is raise money for these folks and these organizations. Um, Tracker Academy, they, they love to take donations um, to help with um, sponsoring young uh, young students um, and uh, you know and there's, piece, there's a whole slew of large organizations that run big <coughs> big reserves in, in Africa and they're always wanting volunteers they're wanting as much cash um, to go into these organizations as possible so um, I think you know I, my whole goal is if I can run four groups a year plus minus to start off with um donate as much money as I can to these conservation groups and I feel like I'm actually doing something um, I don't want to be an armchair environmentalist um, it, it, it's taking me this long to get to this point where I feel confident that I can actually make this work and um, I'm really excited so if folks want to get involved mm-hmm. um, what's the best way um, I guess the best way is like we're still building a website um, is just reach out to us at uh, biomeafrica at gmail.com. Uh, you can also reach me at uh, rich at gardenrootco.com. Um, and uh, we're on Instagram, biomeafrica uh, and Facebook, uh, usual usual uh, social media um, environments that you can reach, us, reach, reach out to me on. And it's, you know, it's very casual. Um, so for next August, which is my next um, series of trips, I've got two trips, one starting August 1st to August 6th, and then August 6th to the 14th. Uh, I've got six spots. People can sign up as a group if they want to bring you know, themselves and their five best friends. Um, I also want to put it out to um, you know, young adults who are p- perhaps their students and they want to get into conservation and as part of their... Um, their training or their degrees, uh, we're hoping to actually build um, up um, credits so people can actually come on these um, 
these missions and actually get gain credits uh, for education. Um, I'm yeah, you know, I'll take anybody. I, I want this is open. It's open to everybody. Um, obviously, the cost and the travel time to get all the way to South Africa is a consideration. It's a thirty-hour door-to-door trip, um, so that's obviously a consideration. And once you're there, you probably want to be there for a few weeks. So I can help people navigate the back end of the trip. Um, but yeah, reach out to me online, biomafrica.com, uh, biomafrica.gmail.com, and I'm happy to chat to anyone who's interested. Fantastic. We'll make sure that those uh, links and uh, contact information gets put in the show notes so people can find them both in uh, in written form as well. And I know you had a couple of different readings that you wanted mm-hmm. to share. Yeah. Um, so So let's... Let's wind down with those, and then I think a couple of closing thoughts, and then uh, and then we'll wrap this this episode up. Yeah, sounds good. You know, so over time, I've been influenced by various people uh, to get to where I am today, um, and uh, one of which is the Varty family, who run an amazing, you know, uh, probably one of the the most iconic game reserves in South Africa called Londolozi. Um I went there as a child when they were when the Varty brothers were still building that camp in the early seventies and had that's my early my earliest childhood memories was you know, kind of groveling around in the dirt on Londolozi and they're still building those camps and running you know, driving around on the back of uh pickup trucks, you know, when they were having to shoot in parlor for for the pot for the guests. Um and that has now grown into this amazing game reserve, um, and um, that family has done a lot for conservation. And so, um, one of the Varty family, a, a man called Boyd Varty, wrote a, a book called Cathedral of the Wild. Uh, my wife gave me that book for I think Christmas one year, and I read that book, and it really struck a note with me. So much so that I ended up reaching out to Boyd Varty and saying, you know what you've discussed in this book is just so profound to me. Um, and I'd love, you know, if you're ever in San Francisco, I'd love to sit down with you and chat about this idea I have. Well, sure enough, he answered my call and was in San Francisco. And he's like, oh, I'm in North Beach in San Francisco. Why don't we hook up? So we ended up hanging out and we had a one-hour chat. And he's an amazing man. Uh, with so much life experience in the bush and and with conservation and he runs his own him and Martha Beck started a whole you know um, whole thing together whole relationship and that has now progressed uh, where Boyd is uh, a um, a guide you know he's a he's a a guide for humans you know and uh, so he tracks people um, you know he's I He's a is a guide for humans, as far as I'm concerned. I mean, if you can afford to go on one of his trips, you should do so. But after meeting with him, I decided to make some notes, and I started doing a lot of reading, and um, started reaching out to other people in this world, and started getting a lot of good positive feedback, saying, "Hey, you should just do this thing. Just get involved, one way or another." Uh, one of the readings that I um, I read, uh, which is a poem by a man called Ian McCullen. He's a South African, used to be a Springbok rugby player. Um, he wrote this poem called Wilderness. And I found this to be quite profound. I took this on my first trip to meet Steve Falconbridge last year. 
And he said to me when I arrived, he's like, I have something for you. And he gave me this poem. I said, well, hang on, I have something too. And I pulled the same poem out of my diary. So we both had this. Um, so I'm going to read it here. Um, hopefully I, I do justice to this. Have we forgotten that wilderness is not a place, but a pattern of soul, where every tree, every bird and beast is a soul maker? Have we forgotten that wilderness is not a place, but a moving feast of stars, footprints, scales, and beginnings. Since when did we become afraid of the night and that the only bright stars count or that our moon is not a moon unless it's full? By whose command were the animals through groping fingers, one for each hand, reduced to the big five and the little five? Have we forgotten that every creature is within us, carried by tides of earthly blood, and that we named them. Have we forgotten that wilderness is not a place, but a season, and that we are in its final hours? Um, I think that's quite a profound poem. And it's when I feel like I'm going off track and losing myself, I read that, and it, it kind of levels me out a little bit. So um, I'll end it with that. Well... I appreciate your time today, the work that you're doing. I hope that some of the listeners get inspired and reach out. It is sounds like just a fantastic experience to just walk and, and, and be and and some of the ways in which you all are going to help and connect with the communities, etc. I, I hope that resonates with the folks. I'm looking forward to eventually joining you as well. And um, all the best. I, I really appreciate you and the time you spent and welcome me into your home and uh i hope you have a fantastic rest of your day and uh, a successful fall thank you so much aaron and it's a pleasure meeting with you thank you so much for the opportunity thank you buddy cheers all right take care all right the trailbreaker podcast is created by aaron feinberg with production support provided by michael Mori. more interviews and videos can be found at aaronfeinberg.com